Good morning again, everyone. It's great to be in worship with you. Uh, If you're new here, I'd love to meet you after the service. And if this is your first time, as a way of introduction, we've been going through a series uh, on spiritual formation, and it'll take us through the rest of the summer. And we've been looking at different rhythms, different things in the Bible that are recommended to us as patterns of life, as habits of life, that engage us in spiritual formation, that allow us to grow in more conformity with who Jesus is and who he wants us to be as a church. And so uh, this morning, we're looking at the concept of the tongue, of how we use our speech and how that is an issue of spiritual formation. And so let me read our passage for us. This is our New Testament reading from James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses and make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. So I've had a bit of fun this week just thinking about times in my life where I have um, said something moronic or put my foot in my mouth or something ridiculous that I've had to go and apologize for. Um, And I've got lots of examples. Uh, And some of them aren't appropriate for church, so maybe I'll just share this. Maybe I've shared this before, but I have uh, quite a capacity for sleepwalking. And I'll get up in the middle of the night, and uh, sometimes it'll involve getting up and doing something quite bizarre. So one time I was envisioning that there was a massive leak on the ceiling. And so I'm standing up in the middle of the bed trying to fix this leak. And Katie's trying to wake me up. There's no leak. Another time I was convinced that we were under attack. And so I had the covers like this around my head and I was trying to pull Katie under the covers with me. Uh, Another time I was feverishly sweeping the bed because there were thousands of spiders on the bed, or so I thought. And then another time, another family member was involved in this because Oliver came in our room when I was dreaming about, again, intrusion or something, and I picked my pillow up and threw it right at him and just nailed him 
And he started crying and wondered why dad was throwing pillows at him in the middle of the night. It's always something super bizarre, and it's a bit different every time, but what is consistent is how I respond. And when Katie finally wakes me up, and I'm finally, you know, a bit coherent, I always try to play it off. I always try to convince her that there was indeed a leak. There were indeed spiders. There was indeed an intruder. I have a perfectly good explanation for what I was doing. Well, what's going on there? Well, I am all, at one, partly it's just that I'm semi-coherent, but the other thing is that I feel like a bozo, and I'm trying to cover for that. What about in your life? Maybe it's not sleepwalking. Um, Maybe it's shading the truth. Maybe it's exaggerating stories to make yourself look better. Maybe it's pretending not to be asleep when someone wakes you up with a phone call. I'm not sure why we're embarrassed by that, but all of us do that, right? I wasn't sleeping. Why do we do these things? Why do we often find ourselves saying things that aren't entirely true or even patently false? Well, James is going to tell us. And there's other parts of the Bible where we may wrestle with. We may have to be convinced that this makes sense and this is relevant to our story, but this one is just immediately relevant, right? We all know what it's like to use our tongues in an improper way and for someone to say things about us that haunt us. We know the power of words. Eric Idle from Monty Python said, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will make me go into a corner and cry by myself for hours. See, James is aware of the power of words, and he's not just saying, look, try to be truthful in everything you say. Don't hurt people with your speech. Those things are certainly included. But what he's saying is a bit more deep, and he says that when you use your tongue to praise God and then curse those who are made in his image, you're betraying a fundamental allegiance that you claim to live by. In other words, what he's saying is not just reform your speech, but your words, your pattern of speech are a test of what you really believe. They're a test of true religion. To me, it's helpful to unpack what James is saying if we think about the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. Okay, one measures temperature and the other changes temperature. One reveals a condition about a room and one changes the conditions in a room. You see, the tongue reveals something incredibly significant about the fundamental orientation of one's heart and the tongue has the power to change persons and relationships and conversations. See, first of all, James talks about though not using this language, the tongue as a thermometer of one's internal condition. If you want to know what really has your heart, you re- what you really have attached meaning to in life, then inspect your words. Verse 9, with our tongues we confess God as Lord and curse those who are made in his image. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? In some way, what James is telling us, and I think Jesus backs him up, and most, most of the rest of the Bible has much to say about this as well, is that the tongue has a direct access to our hearts. And if we want to know what we really believe, not just what we profess to believe, listen to the words that we use, okay? 
What comes out of the spring tells us something about its source. If it's a, a spring that's underground and it's freshwater spring, you don't get salt water at the end of the at the at the top. The tongue, the words we use, and how we use them reveals our internal dispositions. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. A few jobs ago, this was a long, long time ago, I, uh, I was told in seminary that you, you have to allow the statute of limitations to expire on anything that you've committed in the past before you share it publicly. So this is a long, long time ago. But I came into my boss's office, and I'd only had the job for, I don't know, a month or so, and I had a lot going on. But he'd assigned a certain project to me, and he asked me if I was done, and I totally had forgotten about it. So I lied. And, well, let's say I exaggerated. I said, well, it needs a few tweaks. It needs a few edits. I'll have it to you first thing in the morning. And I did. I worked the rest of the day and stayed up late at night and got the project done. So maybe more of an exaggeration than a lie. But, you know. But why did I do that? I believe that it was important to always tell the truth, but in that moment I wasn't truthful. Why is that? Well, my desire to not look incompetent and forgetful was stronger in that moment than was my desire to be faithful and truthful. So I willingly negotiated what I claimed to uphold. And that's what James is saying, that the tongue is the test of true religion. The tongue is a thermometer, but it's also a thermostat. And this is where we kind of get to this idea of spiritual formation. How does the tongue apply to spiritual formation? Well, words not only destroy and diminish other people, but the speaker who uses unkind words, hurtful words, prideful, arrogant words, is not just damaging another person, but they're damaging themselves. George Orwell in 1984 in the front of your bulletin says, but if thought corrupts language, language can also corrupt thought. Here we should see that James is saying, control your tongue, because if you don't, it will control you, and it will ultimately destroy you. The tongue, verse 6, is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts. Do you see that? It corrupts the whole person. It's not just something that responds to internal conditions, but it corrupts. It's corrupting and sets the whole course of one's life on fire. Now, when you live in the West, you get familiar, uh, you get used to wildfires and stories of wildfires. In the summer, in California, Oregon, Washington, there's dozens of fires burning at any particular time. And often these fires destroy homes, they destroy livelihoods, they destroy ecosystems, they kill animals, and sometimes people. And sometimes these fires are an act of deliberate arson. It's intentional destruction. Sometimes they're just purely careless when someone leads a campfire unattended. But you know, almost never is a fire set intentionally. No one's out there with a big flamethrower setting a fire. It's normally just a tiny little spark. It's normally just embers that have been left a little bit hot, unattended, and they get hotter, and then something combustible comes in contact with them. Words are so powerful. They're little, tiny little things 
but they're so powerful that they can corrupt and change the course of one's life. They're not only an index of one's inner condition, but in some way they externalize that inner condition and they solidify the thoughts that the tongue is conveying. They may be carelessly said or intentional, but tiny pronouncements can change the course of one's whole life. Nathaniel Hawthorne says, Words are so innocent and powerless when standing in a dictionary. How potent for good or evil they become, however, in the hands of one who knows how to combine them. When you say of yourself, I'm a failure, I'm a nobody, I'm worthless, I'm afraid, James is saying that somehow this inner verdict becomes externalized and becomes more true of yourself. And also, when we diminish other people, when we criticize, demean, slander, we are setting ourselves above them. You see? We are verbalizing our own pride and arrogance, and in some way, that point of view is fastened down upon our life. Now, unfortunately, as we think about change, as we think about how do we go about changing that, this is the spiritual formation angle, James takes a pretty grim perspective on trying to conquer this reality. Verse 8, humankind can subdue all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds, and sea creatures, but no one can tame the tongue. No one can tame the tongue. So which is it, James? Are you telling us this that will change, or are you just telling us this is the reality that we have to live with, so get used to it? Well, how do we respond to this passage? Is it a lost cause? Well, one of two ways comes to mind as we think about this. One, we could soften the command, right? It's almost impossible. So I need to redouble my efforts. I need to try harder. I need to tighten my belt. I'm going to get this done. Or the tongue shows our inability to reform ourselves. Then it may be one of the most prominent things about our lives that we can't reform it ourselves, that we don't have the power to change the way we speak in and of ourselves. James says we must tame the tongue, but we can't, he says also. So what do we have to do? We have to go somewhere else, okay? We have to go outside of ourselves. James helps us with three examples, verses 3 through 5. He says the tongue rests in the human mouth as the bit is in the horse's mouth. Both cases, a very small thing is moving something larger, controlling something larger. Then he says that the tongue is like a rudder of a ship. It's very small, but it turns the ship, even though the ship is pushed by heavy winds. In the same way, the tongue turns the whole person. Something little turns the whole person. And the tongue is like a spark in the woods. Even a small spark can cause a raging fire. And the tongue, a small part of your body, can cause raging conflict and raging fire in your relationships. It doesn't seem like a solution at first. It seems like he's making the case that it's even harder than you think. But notice when you first read these analogies, they seem to have two parts, the bit and the horse, the rudder and the ship, the tongue, and great boasting. But if you look closer, there's actually three parts, okay? Not two parts, but three. There's an agent that exercises its will through the bit, the rudder, and the tongue. There's a rider, there's a pilot, 
and then there's the will. In one of the translations we read that no one can control the tongue. But the passage, and our passage gets it more correct, no man or no human being can control the tongue. What translators are trying to do is they're not only trying to make the point that the original audience was not all men, but also what he's trying to say is that it's no human can control the tongue. No one on earth can control the tongue. St. Augustine says, James does not say no one can tame the tongue, but no man, so that when it is tamed, we admit that it was done by the mercy of God, by the assistance of God, by the grace of God. One of the key things in this series that we've been going through that I hope you get is that the, the commands in the Bible, all of the things that we've been putting for you as habits or patterns or rhythms of life, are there not simply to direct your behavior, but they're also to help us reflect upon our own humanity. They're there to help us see how far short we fall of the gospel and of Jesus. And as we do this in our own lives, we have to learn to apply the grace of God, to apply the assistance of God, the mercy of God to our own lives. But we also need to learn to give others grace. As we learn to give ourselves grace and we fail, we need to learn to give others grace. And this is a series on spiritual formation, so we're trying to be practical. Let me give you just a few principles that I think will help, and then we'll wrap up. First of all, as we seek to deal with other people's speech, remember or think about this. If they didn't say it to you, they didn't say it. If they didn't say it to you, they didn't say it, okay? Don't fret about what you've overheard someone has said about you. If they don't have the urgency or the courage to say it to you themselves in person, then they didn't say it. Whatever they're willing to say about you and not to you says more about them than it does about you. So move on. Forget about it. If they didn't say it to you, they didn't say it. It may have been said or it may have been said in a very different way, in a different tone. And you have to realize that the the mediation of that word is very different when you hear it on the tail end than when it was spoken. Secondly, Put the best spin on your words that you can. And this is a simple application of the golden rule. Whatever you hear someone else say, try to think the best of their motives. Put their words in the best light. It's the very thing that you would want them to do for you. 1 Corinthians 13 is often read at weddings, and it's um, very appropriate. Verse 6 Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. This is incredibly difficult, but whenever someone is speaking about you or speaking to you or speaking in any way, you have the choice of whether to protect them and protect their words or whether to expose them and harm them. But love always, it says, protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. Therefore, as we hear people speaking, we put the best spin on their words. We try to think of their motives in the best light. It's the very same thing we want someone to do for us. 
Thirdly, there is no them in quotations marks. There is no them. Miroslav Volf says, forgiveness flounders when we exclude the offender from the company of humanity and exclude ourselves from the company of sinners. It's a quote I've used over and over because it's so good and it never really gets old. As we exclude ourselves from the company of sinners, then we will be offended by, scandalized by, irreparably wounded by others' words. We'll say, how dare they? How could they possibly say that or think that? But the gospel says there is no them, there's only us. And we can recall multiple times where we've said, if not the very same thing, but the same sort of thing to someone else. There is no them, there's only us. We've used words to harm other people. So when you're harmed by words, not only put it in the best possible light, but also remember your own humanity and your own sinfulness. Fourthly, have I really heard them? Have I really heard them? Have I listened? Ask questions to clarify, because unless you have a concrete reason to distrust someone, put their words in the best possible light, and then ask clarifying questions. You see, if we quickly marshal our arguments to win, We may miss the opportunity to hear something that God is trying to tell us, even if we disagree with the person's ultimate conclusion or ultimate point. We can listen. We can ask clarifying questions. Is this really what you mean? Here's what I hear you saying. That's a hard one. And then finally, let your failures of the tongue, of speech, lead to repentance. All of us are going to say things we regret, probably today. We're going to say something that we wish we hadn't said. Maybe it's not hurtful. Maybe it just puts us in the wrong light. We're going to regret it. But don't cover. Don't hide. Don't shame yourself. Deal with what's going on. The good news is that the gospel draws us out of hiding. It draws us out of covering and into repentance and confession first with the person that we've offended, and then with God. You see, our misuses of speech should show us areas where we're unwilling to trust God most fully. You remember my example about lying about the project? Well, it revealed something about what was ruling my heart at that moment. And so it wasn't just, you shouldn't lie and be truthful, but use your your evidence of lying to reveal what's really going on in your heart. And that's where your tongue is an issue of spiritual formation. Maybe we shaded the truth in some way because we were afraid of that person's disapproval. And we can learn then that we're not content fully with God's approval for us. Maybe we shared something negative about a coworker because we wanted them to feel the rejection that we feel And it shows us that we're not confident in God's eternal approval. Maybe we passed on gossip because that person needs to feel what it feels like to be gossiped about. And we see in our speech that we think of ourselves to be above the person that we're willing to gossip gossip about. So it's not simply don't gossip, tell the truth, always be truthful, reform your speech, but see in your speech what's ruling your heart. We'll continue to fail, but where is our ultimate hope? You see, there is only one who is perfect in speech, the one who had every right to look down upon 
others and instead chose to lift others up. Whatever Jesus said was true and lasting, and instead of using his words to wound, he used them to heal. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says that not only is he willing to speak words of forgiveness over you, but that he testifies on your behalf before the Father. And he says, Father, they're with me. These are my people. And friends, as you get that into your DNA, into your internal condition, as you realize that Jesus is speaking constantly grace over you, then when someone says something nasty, you're able to push it away. Because look at what Jesus is saying about me constantly. They're with me. They're my people. And even when we choose to use our words to offend and to exclude, he says, they're mine. They're included. And his words are always true. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I do in fact pray that we as a church would embody this, that as we look across the pew, maybe someone has said something to us that's been hurtful. Lord, let us uh, offer them forgiveness. Let us put the best spin on their words. Let us remember how we have said things that we regret and that were hurtful. And Father, let us look most not to ourselves and not to one another, but to you, that you speak grace over us that you went to the cross in the person of your Son to deal with our broken, hurtful words, and that you said true words and lasting words and eternal words over us of delight and joy. And Father, we pray that we would rest in that, that we would walk in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.